We're continuing our teaching series this evening um, on the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of five or so talks into what's been, for me, a remarkable series. I felt like hugely challenged as we've immersed ourselves in the teaching of Jesus, the ethical framework for life in the Kingdom of God. Um, It's been a remarkable series so far. Um, If you've missed any of it, you can find it on our website, kxc.org.uk. Um, and in a minute, I'm going to intro a good friend, Will van der Hart. So this evening will be a little bit different. We're still going to cover the ground in Matthew chapter 6 um, that's been put aside for this evening. But we're going to do it in an interview style. Um, so let me introduce Will. I, I've realised there's a kind of culture that's crept into, probably KXC, it's definitely crept into the wider church. Um, we call it the culture of honour, where when someone gets up to speak, we spend five minutes blowing some hot air up their backside. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, and it becomes just a five minute intro of everything they've done, the remarkable things they've achieved in their life. And And I've been around those environments and there's something that's very subtle underneath it, which it celebrates and everyone just, you know, sort of goes along with it thinking, yeah, this is amazing. This is a culture of honour. But underneath it, the danger of it is, is that what it says is that if you achieve something remarkable with your life, then you'll be worthy of our applause. Then you'll experience the affirmation of the crowd and more than that, potentially the affirmation of the father in heaven. So do something remarkable because then you'll win the love of your father. Um, and I just sort of like, just want to break that and just say that we're not really down with that. Um, so whilst I have been doing a, a fair few of those intros, like just giving people like a whole load of hot air up the backside, um, today I'm going to do something different. I'm just going to introduce my friend Will, who is remarkable, and there's lots of things I could say about him, all the things he's achieved, all the books he's written, all the things he's accomplished in his ministry, in his life. But what I want you to know about Will is that he's an amazing guy that he loves Jesus, what I admire most about him is that he's experienced significant periods of pain in his life and rather than getting cynical um, and bitter, he's become more like Jesus Um, and therefore he's become one of my teachers, one of the individuals I look to of what it it looks like to sort of incrementally and intentionally pursue Christ-likeness. He's an amazing dad, he's got three fantastic kids and he loves his dad's, uh, his kids, probably his dad as well. Um, loves his kids um, and cares more about being a good dad than a Christian celebrity. He's an amazing husband. I love the way he loves his wife, Louie. Um, and all of these things are an inspiration to me. So why don't we give a huge round of applause to Will van der Hart. Thanks, Pete. That is, that is the nicest introduction I've ever had. Oh. Um, I would have thrown rotten tomatoes at you if you'd done a whole dialectic about all of the things I've done. Um, I describe myself as a, an old wreck, um, <laughs> but an old wreck that uh, is, uh, you know, learning more about the grace and love of Jesus every day. So mm. that's what I'm... Um, that's what we're passionate about. Yeah, and that's what we want to interview you about. The, the psalm that was in my head, and it just... It was, when we were worshipping, I was drawn back to it. Psalm 23, which is probably the best known of all the psalms, is about God as a shepherd. And actually, for anyone who wants to become a pastor, and I don't mean like full-time Christian ministry paid to do it, but just loves people well, essentially it's, it's a journey towards becoming a greater shepherd. And the role of a shepherd is to lead people to green pastures and still waters, right? But to lead people towards green pastures and still waters. In other words, to lead them to a place where they can thrive, you need to know how to get through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Because that's what life will throw at you. 
pain, disappointment, failure, heartbreak, and you need to get through that valley and have your faith intact if you're going to lead other people through that valley to green pastures and still waters. And that's why you're an amazing pastor, an amazing shepherd, um, because you've been through that journey and you've encountered the grace of God. Um, so I want to sort of like ask you about some of your story, particularly going back to when we used to work together on staff at St. Mary's. And you went through a very significant period of, of your life of self-discovery, if you like, um, in response to a trauma that took place, um, the 7-7 bombings. So we worked um, at Branson Square, this church there, which was literally like 100 yards from Edgware Road Tube Station. Um, and for many in the room, I'm guessing you might have been in London during the 7-7 bombings, and it was hugely traumatic, but particularly traumatic for those that were almost first responders. Um, just tell us something of that day. You woke up, went to work, what happened? And then we'll get to the journey that's kind of come about because of that. Yeah, um, so the day of uh, the 7-7 bombings, I, my wife was going to a conference in Oxford, and uh, we were in a flat. We lived just next door to a road station, pretty much, and uh, I walked her down Parade Street to Paddington, and I walked back at about 10 past 9, um, shortly after the bomb had gone off in Edgeware Road Station. And um, it took me a few minutes, but I, you know, cordons are always going up in London, so when do you, you know, when do you know it's a serious thing that you need to do something? And I, I just I had a sense... I think, I think from the Holy Spirit that I needed to put my dog collar on, which is not something I do willingly. <laughs> so I, I needed a prompting of the Holy Spirit to do that. And um, I, I got my dog collar on and I came out of my flat and I, I went immediately under the cordon and I remember a man ran towards me covered in soot and he was just saying bodies, their bodies, their bodies. He was clearly sort of traumatised and he was going one way away from the trauma and I was going the other way towards the trauma. And I think the danger for me was that I'd put on my dog collar and my clergy attire and it's like... It's a bit like being Clark Kent, you know, getting into a phone booth and coming out with your Superman kit on. And the thing is, you kind of need to be Superman. Like, if you've got the gear, you're an idiot if you put the gear on and you, don't, you can't actually fly. Yeah. The trouble about being the clergy person is you put the kit on, but you can't really fly. Mm. You're just a regular person. And so I went under the cordon and started getting involved. And, uh, you know, what, what, the first question you always ask if you're an Anglican clergyman is, do, do you need the toilet? Followed shortly by, do you need a cup of tea? Um, both of which are actually quite important necessities in a period of trauma. So we opened up this church hall right opposite the station. And I, within about half an hour, that was the main operating base for the emergency responders from Edgeware Road. And that included you know, 100 firefighters, all of the first responder police officers, um, SO13, all the, all the guys involved in the investigation. And, and I guess what I was doing was praying, facilitating, gathering stuff from Starbucks and Costa, you know, to service people's needs. And that, you know, there's a few remarkable moments in the day, but one particular, I remember, all the phones were switched off, all mobile phones were switched off, lest there'd be another bomb attached to a mobile phone. Mm. So none of these fire brigade personnel had any access to understand what was going on more widely in London and they said to me oh Will have you got a TV and so I ran back to my flat and I brought this little 14 inch TV back and we plugged it in and we put it on the altar right mm. at the front of this church and we're kind of gathered there in a big group to watch and that's when we watched the Russell Square bomb go off on, on the bus and I think at that point the temperature in the room dropped by about 10 degrees you know and it changed from responding to a trauma to a furious kind of just a furious sense of anguish and rage and I um, went outside and was promptly sick all over the floor wow. didn't think anything of it mm. came back in and kind of carried on as normal 
Um, but I was, I, was, I was changed by both what I saw, but also the second-hand stories of trauma from the people I was with. Yeah. And um, I went away f- after this. We won various awards. St Mary's won an mm. award, I won an award, which is a terrible thing to happen to you when you don't feel that you've done anything. Again, mm. sort of sense of fraudulence comes in. I haven't really done anything. Mm. Why am I being celebrated for not doing anything? Um, a real sense of a lack of validity... Yeah. Um, and then uh, over the summer, very people saying, oh, what happened, what happened? And I didn't want to talk about it. And um, I should have seen some warning signs at that point. But yeah, things got considerably worse after that. So, so you've got the adrenaline rush of like just in the chaos, responding, meeting people's needs, listening to people, praying, all of that. Then you go on holiday and probably over the next weeks, months, the trauma is just beginning to resurface. Um, so just talk us through what kind of happened Yes, the After thing, that. The thing about trauma is trauma is a bit like a comet. You get hit by the rock, but then three months later you get whipped by the tail. And um, any traumatic incident you've gone through, you, we're actually very well equipped physiologically to respond to trauma. There's something called the fight or flight mechanism that many of you will know about. You know, we can respond well to trauma in the physical, but the emotional is the thing that really hurts us. That's the tail whip that comes later. Normally, it takes three months for a trauma to be what we call habituated. That means that the trauma has become real in our psyche rather than just real in our physicality. And um, I was actually sitting in the Baker Street screen watching Atonement with my wife. I think um, Kieran Knightley was sort of floating around the, the kind of a field in a long dress, and I had a terrible panic You remember attack. that, don't you? I remember it. <laughs> Not because it was a wonderful scene, but I, I remember it because it was the most innocuous place ever mm. to have a panic attack. I literally, she was walking around in a field in a sort of Victorian dress, <laughs> and I broke out into a terrible sweat. Wow. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, and I felt suddenly cold, like my limbs, my hands, my feet. I had this awful, deathly feeling in my head. I was breathing hard, my yeah. pulse was racing, I felt nauseous. And I was looking at Kieran Knightley walking around in the field, I was thinking, this is a massive overreaction. Um, what, I didn't, what I didn't know uh, at the time, really, that was going on in me, was that this was a panic attack, is a, is a response to inappropriate levels of adrenaline uh, in, in, in your bloodstream as a response to a trauma that you've experienced historically. Uh, and that was the beginning of a pretty acute period of, you know, up to nine panic attacks a day, and then at night time, I wasn't sleeping, I couldn't eat, yeah. I lost about a stone and a half in weight... I, um, I was having panic attacks at all times, uh, mm. constantly feeling cold, absolutely exhausted. Um, my brain was sort of running at 120 miles an hour. Um, and, yeah, I, it, was, it was pretty traumatic. So, two questions then. In, in that whole process then of panic and what the hell is happening to my body, to my mind, all of this stuff, while still serving in the context of the church and holding down a job. What did you learn about yourself, looking back now, however many years it's been? What did you learn about yourself? And secondly, what did you learn about God? Well, it was really interesting because when I, I went to see a GP who wasn't a Christian, and he was brilliant, and he just was like, Will, this is what's happened to you. This is what you're experiencing. This is the science behind it. This is what you need to understand. And I was like, oh, the few. Yeah. And then I saw two Christian leaders who were good friends of mine. The first one said to me that he thought the devil had got into my head and that he needed to cast the devil out of me. That was pretty disconcerting. <laughs> uh, the second one denied that I had a problem at all and just said I was tired. Yeah. And so, so there was both the over-spiritualization of my experience mm. and also there was the unrealization of my experience. So one lived in denial and one was living in an, over, you know, an over-spiritualization. But actually the reality was it was both 
you know, it was a human experience yeah. that was very real, but everything is spiritual. Yeah. It wasn't the devil wasn't in me at all. I mean, I, you know, I, Jesus was in me. Yeah. But, but my experience of desolation was a spiritual experience. I needed to know Christ with me in mm. that valley of the shadow. But I didn't, I didn't need to think that the devil was in me because yeah. <laughs> he wasn't. Yeah. So um, what I learned, I think more than anything, was the enduring presence of God regardless of how we feel at the time. I think, you know, it's, in, particularly in the charismatic tradition, it's so easy to believe that we need to put on our perma-smile and walk in the door and be upbeat as we sing to Jesus, and that will kind of make him happy. But all Jesus really wants is for us to just welcome him in whatever our circumstance just the sense to me that Jesus was always with me. You know, I know it's maybe a bit twee now, but the footprints poem we all used to get when we were young Christians, you know, the sort of footprints disappearing and you say, oh God, where did you go? And God says, no, actually, I was, I was carrying you at that point. That was very real for me then. Yeah. Um, just to know that actually that God was present with me and that God was going to see me through, yeah. that, that was just, that solidified my faith. It didn't shake my faith. I think a lot of people think that your faith will get shaken by bad experiences, and so we're sort of almost terrified about talking about them in the church. Mm. But so often terrible experiences solidify our faith. They don't shake our faith. It's at those times of desperate need and desolation that we see God at work. And I, I, saw, God, I saw God at work in you. Mm. I remember walking around Brunson Square with you. I went round and round and round Branson Square. I walked, you know, anyone who'd walk with me, walking was like the thing I wanted to do. I was, you know, I wanted, I need to get rid of some of that. I remember walking with you and you're just really, just really solid. And just, it just felt like being with my Christian brothers and sisters was like, I could, I could tangibly sense the presence of Jesus. And I knew Jesus was in me. I knew Jesus was in you. And I somehow felt deep, a deep sense of comfort in my desolation. The times that I was terrified were the times I was on my own. You know, it wasn't that I didn't know Jesus was with me, but I just needed to know someone else was there too, that actually it could be alongside. And and that's because we're created for connection. You know, we're made to belong. Mm. God's created us for relationship, not isolation. And it's in moments of desolation that we know what's true about ourselves. That's that we we belong, we're created for belonging, and we're designed for relationship. It's all of the trappings of life that frighten us away from the reality of how we're really shaped. Mm. You know, we... We know our purpose and our design when we're stripped back from all the stuff that blocks us from experiencing our true purpose and our true design. And actually trauma often shows us what's important in life. Yeah. And we're going to come on to some of those trappings as we look at the passage. Um, Before that, though, um, one of the redemptive parts of the story, because it it was a horrific period, um, but a ministry began. I guess, in you before it ever got, you know, externalised, called Mind and Soul. So now it's kind of an amazing website. You've written multiple books um, and you travel, you know, you're helping the church engage in what does spiritual and emotional maturity look like. But just talk us about the beginnings, like off the back of this, how come Mind and Soul well, what, kicked off? And one of the first things I'd say, Pete, is it's really easy for me to point to the London bombings and say, look, that's, that's it. That's the locus of my, of my problem. Yeah. But my problem is so much deeper than that. You know, my problem didn't start at the London bombings. My problem started way back in my childhood. Yeah. My problems with anxiety have been long running. And I think we, 
you know, as far as mental health is concerned, I'm a passionate campaigner for anti-stigma, you know, particularly within the context of the church. And I know that when leaders identify one event as being the reason that they had a problem, that disempowers a huge amount of the congregation who, who don't have one event to hang the mental health coat peg on. And it also, it can feel like, oh, wow, it's all right for Will. He's got a story about, you know, being this great priest, da-da-da-da. And then he got ill as a consequence. That, how, that makes that good. That makes that okay. But I want to say to you, that's not how it is. You know, I was a broken little boy who used to worry my way to school every day, you know, terrified of the bullies and, you know, in a real pickle. Like the, the London bombings brought to life something acutely that was very much latent within me. I needed to start a mental health ministry when I was six. You know, um, that, that's true. Like, and actually, what we have to do is, is, is own the whole story, not yeah. just a part of the story. The London bombings was like God just, he, you know, he, he didn't do it. You know, he didn't do it. I don't believe that like, God puts you through bad stuff to make stuff happen. But God certainly redeems bad stuff in your life. And I felt like the London bombings was the locus for which I could wake up to the reality that it wasn't just, it wasn't about me. Like, I had my struggles, but I suddenly realized that there were so many other people out there who were struggling too, and no one was talking to them. I, I remember looking back after, a, you know, a couple of months in my recovery and just thinking, wow, if this is how the, treat, the priest is treated, how, how are the congregation treated? And I started talking to people, has anyone got a mental health problem? And everyone was like, no, no, <laughs> not unless you're asking in a particular way. Has anyone got a mental health problem? Would like to talk to me in a private room afterwards, and we'll never talk about this publicly. Suddenly, yeah. all these people come out of the woodwork. They're like, "Yeah, but I'd never talk about it in church because it's not safe." Wow. That's when I got together with Rob, who is yeah. a friend of mine from you know, it helped me in my own recovery as a consultant psychiatrist, and we started initially blogging online uh, around Christianity and mental health. Um, I brought the theology, he brought the psychiatry and psychology. Then Kate joined the team who's a doctor and a psychologist yeah i mean now we we have you know two two and a half million hits a year we're in 26 different countries and essentially we're the largest christian mental health provider in in the country um which is which is all exciting but it's not a ministry i'm not i don't want to start a ministry or a charity or a you know it's all of those things but it's about connection all i want to do is make you know we want to make people's connection to Jesus more possible when they're struggling with mental health problems. I don't care how many people do it or how many people engage with it so much as I care that one or two people will say, yeah, someone helped me realise that it was okay to have a mental health problem and be a Christian. Yeah. That, that is, that's what all we're about. So, so one of the things that once we've worked through this content... You know, you're, you're up for having conversations. It's going to be hard for you to stick around because you need to get back to a service at HTB. But in terms of, like, Twitter and social oh, yeah. media, if people want to throw questions sure. at you off the back of what we're about to, you know, yeah, journey at, through. Just at Mind and Soul UK or the www.mindandsoulfoundation.org uh, websites or our thing. But, you know, it, it's just about engagement and yeah. we run campaigns and all that sort of stuff. But, but you know, the, the, the excitement and the thing that keeps me kind of pumped about the whole thing is just it's breaking down stigma it's yeah. it's it's and, you know people have contacted and said look you know i was going to kill myself mm. honestly and i read this article and i'm i'm here yeah. because i've read this article <laughs> and like the stigma was so heavy for me like and my sense of dislocation from god was so powerful for me i really wanted to take my life mm. and we, we get those we don't get them regularly but we have had quite a significant number of those which is really for me is like wow I'm yeah. so glad we this did something. Needed. But even it's just the day-to-day, you know, I've got OCD, um, 
I keep needing to say amen, mm. like help me, because this is really killing me right now. Yeah. Or like I need to confess over and over again to everyone because I've got this obsessive thing in my head. Mm. You know, help me, because this is really, I'm like, I don't know whether I can be a Christian anymore if this is what I have to do. It's stuff like that. Yeah. It's just setting captives free, but it's all here. It's all in yeah. Jesus. It's just about making it real for people. Amazing. So let, let's launch into the Sermon on the Mount. So yeah. Dallas Willard described the Sermon on the Mount as a, a curriculum for Christ-likeness. So some practices that help us become like Jesus. And I guess one of the verses that points to that is Matthew, the end of Matthew 5, where Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, pursue holiness. Pursue being like Jesus, being like God. But for some... They could hear that and it activate raw panic. In other words, this is fuel for perfectionism and perfectionism will kill me. The idea that perfectionism or being perfect is what's going to help me feel loved as opposed to a journey to becoming more like Jesus. This is somehow a medal to win that earns the love of the Father. You've written a brilliant book, the perfectionism book. Um, Talk us through the psychology of perfectionism and why Jesus isn't saying that. Um, and how do you get free from perfectionism? Well, I mean, the first thing I do is come into the text and say, actually, the word that uh, the word Matthew uses here for perfection isn't is a poor interpretation in the NIV. So, actually, the the, the Greek word teleoi means mm. actually complete. Be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is complete. It seems remarkable to me that the Sermon on the Mount would end having been about the Beatitudes mm. and and all the broken people, and then you know this amazing prayer for broken people. Mm to then land with oh yeah and then be perfect because basically no one gets in so it's like you can all come in you can all come in you can all come in no no one can come in it would be ridiculous right so actually the greek words be complete therefore as your heavenly father is complete it's actually saying you're incomplete pete mm-hmm. you're incomplete but fi- the best way to translate it is, the, is the weymouth translation which is be complete in your heavenly father who is complete and perfect yeah so if you if you think about god triune god father son and holy spirit as, as being complete mm. We find our completeness in God through Christ. We will talk about this sort of gap in our hearts that Christ fills. That makes us complete. But we're both made complete internally and we're also hidden in Christ to find our completion before God. Mm. And so really what, what, what we're being called towards here is not to find completion in worldly things, not to build up our own kingdoms for our own sake, but to actually find our completeness in Christ to know that he can satisfy us and we can f- be found whole in God. Mm. So uh, there's no space for perfectionism in scripture. Mm. Uh, really, there's only space for grace, which is about saying I'm not perfect, but I can be made complete by God himself. In, in the world, perfectionism is seen as a vehicle by which I can achieve excellence. I'm a perfectionist because I want to do well. Yeah. But in contemporary psychology, perfectionism is actually a disease which will kill you from ever doing well. Mm. Um, Forbes magazine recommends that we never employ perfectionists because they're bad for team, they're bad for company, they're bad for mental health and they'll lead to bad results. Um, actually, perfectionism tends to undo us, not, do, not, not make us better. It, it, one of the great markers of, of, of success is the ability to celebrate the successes that you've actually had. But perfectionists can't celebrate successes because it's never enough. Yeah. So if you went to, a, you know, on your team here, if you were a perfectionist, you'd be saying, oh, great, that we've, you know, we've added 20 people to the church this year. Next year, you guys have got to add 30 people. Actually 50, but yeah, right. carry on. <laughs> but there's, the, the perfectionist is driven by never, ever achieving a goal because mm. to achieve a goal would be to lose their purpose. Yeah. 
So their purpose is not rooted in who they are. Mm. It's in, who, in what they can achieve. If you take away what they can achieve, they're completely lost. Yeah. You've basically destroyed their purpose. And so the most broken people are the greatest perfectionists because they don't know that they're enough as they are. They always have to find more to be more. Yeah. That's why they hate you taking away their achievements by celebrating their successes. And actually what we're called to is completion that's already ours. That's mm. the amazing thing about the Sermon on the Mount. It's inviting us to completion that we don't have to work for. Yeah. Perfectionists hate grace. They, <laughs> they don't like the Christian message because actually it says you don't have to work to be a son of God, or to be a daughter of God. You can just receive the free gift of God's grace made known to us by Christ on the cross. That's a horrible message for a perfectionist. <laughs> that says that you win, but you don't have to do anything. Yeah. And actually other people who haven't done anything also win. Mm. That's a terrible message yeah. when your identity is rooted in what you can achieve rather than who you actually are. Mm. The gospel's all about returning us to the place of knowing. Jesus is inviting us to celebrate with him the known child, yeah. those who mourn, those who grieve, those who are hungry and thirsting after righteousness. He's inviting us to be the known people, the complete people at the table, and not to find our identity in other things. That's a gospel f- for recovery. So you, so you mentioned perfectionism being a disease. I, I can definitely say I struggle with this disease. Um, I'm guessing others in the room would say, yeah, I'm riddled with this disease too. What, what are some of the pathways... To recovery? What, what are the, some sort of practices that maybe people could go from this place and think, I'm going to try doing this as part of my beginning to partner with Christ and receive his grace? Well, the first one is to uncouple achievement from perfectionism. People say, if I, if I stop being a perfectionist, then I'm going to do sloppy. Actually, you don't need to be a perfectionist to achieve great things. Nearly everyone who you would aspire to in business is a problem-solving pragmatist. They've got lots of different irons in the fire, and one of those irons might come good, but a lot of their businesses are going to fold. Mm. The reason that they can accept that is because they're pragmatic, they're not perfectionists. Perfectionists have got one iron in the fire, and that's going to work, or else. But actually, what if it doesn't work? You know, if you uncouple excellence from perfectionism, then you can begin to get results. We need to practice another way. Mm. But one of the easiest ways to uncover and uncouple yourself from perfectionism is to practice gratitude. And actually, we're invited to this spirit of thankfulness. If we begin every day by thanking God and by walking through our day, practicing the gratitude of saying, oh, that's so good. Oh, thanks for that. Oh, that is so amazing. Actually, our perfectionism is undone because perfectionism is fueled by dissatisfaction. So when we find a satisfaction, we both see an excellence which we can really aspire to, but also we can have a sense of self which is rooted in the now, in the present, in who we actually are. And also we can give glory to God as we're walking along. So the practice of gratitude actually is the kind of the greatest vehicle with which we can uncover both the perfectionism within us, which says, oh, don't be thankful for that, that could be done better. Mm. But, But also the greatest tool to help us to escape the power of perfectionism. Amazing. So let's, we're going to go straight into the text then. So last week, Lulu and Kath did a phenomenal job looking um, at Jesus' teaching on prayer and fasting and giving. Um, We're going to pick up the text now, Matthew 6, verse 19. Um, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there your heart will also be. So I want to ask you about certainty. So Jesus is talking about those that are are trying to eliminate 
any sort of like risk moving forward by just, you know, putting their money somewhere safe so that, you know, tomorrow's taking care of it itself. Um, and it seems that we live in an age where people are desperate for certainty, yet there's trauma because we know that things are so uncertain. Um, why is that? Like, how do we live in an uncertain world as people of faith? I, I would go right back to the beginning uh, mm. and say instead that materialism is idolatry because when we're created for the purpose of relationship, materialism removes us from the need for relationship and provides us with a false security. So Jesus is saying, don't store up for yourself these treasures, these things, these materials, mm. because these materials actually take away your true purpose, which is really for connection. I mean, what do we actually think the treasures are that we're storing up in heaven? Think about what treasures you think there are. Do we honestly think that in heaven there are these storehouses of gold and stuff? Mm. Like, do you think God like, has got some sort of bank and he makes a deposit every time we say something <laughs> nice to him? What are the treasures of heaven? Mm. They're definitely not material things. The mm. treasures of heaven are relational things. Mm. The treasures of heaven are being in communion with God in this most incredible free way and communion with one another. That's because we've been created for communion. Mm. We've been created for this incredible togetherness. So when Jesus is encouraging us not to store up material gifts, he's not saying don't store up material gifts because you're going to get better material gifts in heaven. He's saying don't store up material gifts because they're the things that divert you from your real purpose. You see, it's much easier to have a bag of gold than it is to have a good friendship. Mm. A bag of gold I can get, right? I can be certain about a bag of gold. I know what this bag of gold is. It's not going to walk away. It's solid. It's sitting on the floor. It's in a bag. I can't put you in a bag, Pete. <laughs> like, you're my friend. Mm. So, like, being in a relationship with you is far more important and precious to me than this bag of gold. Apart from the fact is that our relationship is unpredictable. You mm. might be busy with, with B and the boys, and, and I'm not, I might be busy with Lou and the kids and not be able to contact you. Yeah. I, might, I might think you've gone off grid on me, and mm. I, I might feel hurt. Or you might think I've gone off grid on you and you might feel hurt. So it feels more comfortable for me to get hold of this bag of gold because I know the gold's not going to walk away. Mm. You know, and that's what we do over and over again. We exchange our true purpose, which is true relationship, for materialism, which is relationship with something that doesn't have any risk. Mm. As long as I've got stuff, then I can feel safe. The trouble is that that safety is not the safety that's orientated in my spirit. It's a safety which is a poor deposit. It's, it's a poor and, and, and weak alternative to what I've really been created for. The richest people in this world are the people who've got the least material gift but the greatest relational gift. Yeah. The people who are truly rich are the people who've got the best friendships, you know, who've got the deepest relationships, who are not held back by those material things that they've got that's an alternative to the true thing that they actually need. Yeah. So, we, so we've spoken about idolatry. And it, like in a city like London... Um, where, where do we sort of like find certainty? And I'm guessing for a lot of us in the room, if, if we just kind of were being brutally honest for one moment, it's healthy to do that. Um, some of us would say my career. I'm trying to find some sense of certainty in my career. And by that, I also mean identity and purpose and belonging. Trying to just find it in the career. Others maybe in wealth or in, in property or in reputation, you know, fame, how many people are following me on social media. You're trying to find some sense of security and certainty there. We sang earlier about dethroning um, the idols that break our hearts. And that's taken from this C.S. Lewis quote where he said, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. So we need to dethrone them. Um, 
what does dethroning an idol look like? Whether it's materialism or it is, you know, success or it is career or it is idolizing marriage, thinking you'll only be defined when you get married and find purpose, dot, dot, dot there. How do we dethrone idols? The thing about an idol is an idol removes us from purpose. So, you know, you think about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this great big gold box. You know, it was infinitely valuable. Like it contained Ten Commandments. Mm. As long as it's pointing to God, it's a vehicle for our worship. But since it's taken on its own, it becomes an idol of our worship. Yeah. You know, actually, God created us to be fruitful, to actually to be purposeful. But God didn't create Adam and Eve, if you take the story as a, in literal terms, into the garden. He didn't place them there and say, right, now work you know, really hard because that's what you're designed to do for its own sake. He's like, look after the garden, but the garden is about facilitating relationship with God. It's about you know, this vehicle within which we explore true relationship. And, and we're all created for true relationship, and our careers and our opportunities are all vehicles towards greater connection and, and, and great value and great purpose. Like what you do with your... There's nothing wrong with gaining wealth. Yeah. But wealth without purpose is just an idol. But yeah. wealth with purpose, that has value. It, it, there's no, you know, it, it's no mystery that the Gates has set up one of the biggest foundations for the eradication of human disease. Why do they do it? The richest man in the world. Mm. Why does he set up a foundation to eradicate human disease? Because ultimately he knows that wealth without purpose is fruitless. Mm. What he wants to do is to say, how can I make people's lives better relationally by using my wealth for great purpose? The people who are happy... The people who find joy, the people who use wealth and power for purpose. Every super rich person who's power for purpose demonstrates a modicum of <coughs> happiness. But the super rich person who uses power for self-service immediately falls into idolatry because they're so far removed from their true purpose, they don't find any real joy. Yeah. Which is why Jesus would finish off this passage by saying, but seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be given to you as well. Let, let's move on. To the, I want to talk about perception. So Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Again, I think we're living at a time, and we can see it play itself out in our politics, where we look at something other um, and experience fear, and therefore begin to discriminate, and our perceptions are driven by fear, and then potentially hate. And that could be in terms of ethnicity it can be in terms of class it can be dot 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 um why is that and how do we actually bring those perceptions to christ and say give me your lens so i can see the other other people people not like me through your lens my, my son joseph he, he always makes those choosers if you're born in the 80s you'll know what these are or <laughs> 70s even there's like a little kind of paper square and you put your hands inside them and then you open them and, and um, it's like red blue yellow and green and then it's like numbers one two three yeah. four and you choose like green and then four if you open up joseph's one it will say you are a poo and then <laughs> and then he'll say oh no dad have another go and then i'll do it again like one green and then i'll do it and i'll open it again it says you are a poo <laughs> and then i'll like take the chooser away from joseph and then i'll like unfold all the sides and every box says you are a poo <laughs> it doesn't matter how you choose you know genius and, and the thing is he's the, going places he's, isn't go, he? he's, yeah, he's sharp he's, he's really going right sharp. to the top no the thing is I, I think in a way like you know what it says our choosers are broken yeah like our choosers are broken we think we're objective but actually when you unfold us like our perceptions always 
are self-serving. There's always this self-referencing nature. And that's why Christianity is so powerful in reordering our minds and our emotions, because we become other-orientated rather than self-orientated. And it is natural in the human to defend the self. So we have these three systems. We, we have a system of productivity, uh, we have a system of rest and recovery, and we have a system of security. So three different physical functions and psychological functions. The security system takes preeminence over the other two systems. And part of the security system is, is around isolation, segregation, and the promotion of self. So if I can isolate myself from risk and from danger, if I can promote myself against other animals in the, uh, in, in the jungle, uh, and if I can uh, actually propagate myself and people like me, I will do better. Yeah. Those, those are self-serving, but they're also humanly understandable functions. I think we are all inherently racist. I think we are all inherently classist. I think we are all inherently self-protecting. And until we own that reality and stop pussyfooting around, then we will never see significant change. You know, I'm passionate about racial transformation in our city. When I I worked in Harrow for six years, trying to build a racially diverse church, the first thing I knew I needed to do was put up my hand and say, I am inherently racist. Because I would propagate people like me over people who don't look like me. That is a human trait. But I am called as a disciple of Jesus to love my brothers and sisters of every race equally before myself. Not equal to myself, but before myself. As soon as I said that, our church was transformed. We, We went from having one very faithful Asian friend of mine who joined me in ministry, very long-suffering, is now an ordained <laughs> priest in the Church of England, to having a huge amount of people from different ethnicities in my church because I was willing to say, look, this is true for me. Yeah. And until we own those things that would break us, mm. we will never find healing from them. It's the same with mental health. You know, the, the greatest opponent to your healing is your lack of acceptance of your reality. Yeah. If you can never accept your diagnoses, you can never get well. If you can never explore your own heart, you can never find recovery for your heart because you don't know what you need. We all need the honesty of saying, look, this is, this is where I am. Like our perceptions are broken when they're self-serving, but when they're Christ-centered, then they're made true and good. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I think there's power in, again, I bang on about the relational drum. We belong together. The, the church is diverse for a reason. We are the diverse body of Christ. Our diversity speaks of our kingdom. And it's in our ability to be honest, relationally true and real, that that real power comes to bear. And that is in a diverse church. That's in an ethnically diverse church, a racially diverse church, a culturally diverse church, uh, a a church that's diverse diverse on age and, and gender. It's a diverse church that says something about the kingdom of God, where people are honest together. In my experience, the diversity of our, of our body demonstrates the health of our body. Mm. A healthy body is a diverse body because people will only be willing to sit together if they're willing to have an honest conversation together for so long. Yeah. Now, and actually, what I love about this church is that it's, it's diverse. Mm. But I, I know it's diverse because you are having conversations which are Christ-like. You know, I, I just find it fascinating that Jesus probably best known parable is a parable of racial diversity that a Samaritan man should pick up a Jewish man on a road and take him to an inn and seek his restoration. Jesus, it doesn't seem radical to us now 
but it was so radical mm. then. Yeah. Or that Jesus would sit with a Samaritan woman mm. and that they would have a conversation about her relationships. So inappropriate in the <laughs> first century. Mm. But you know, that wasn't a woman who had left four husbands. That was a woman who'd been rejected four times. Because mm. a woman in the first century couldn't divorce a man. A man could only divorce a woman. So you come to church with your scars, with your brokenness, with your rejection stories to find belonging in Christ who says that we all belong. And when we belong together, we have significant power in the kingdom. Wow. God loves the unity. He loves, he loves unity because he is unity. Mm. Amazing. What a beautiful vision for church. Um, let's press on the last segment. I won't, won't read it all, but Jesus begins to talk about worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And it continues. Um, now, you've written the perfectionism book. You've written the guilt book. I didn't ask you to plug these. No, 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 no. Just this, to be is, clear. this is me. This is me. There's, no, no, there's no bookstall at the back yeah. that we're just going to suddenly I roll out in a minute. I promise you not. I get 10% profits. I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> so you should buy this book. No, so the, I'm joking. Perfectionism book that you gave me, the worry book that you gave me, I couldn't find it. The guilt book you didn't give me, but don't feel guilty about that. Um, but let's, let's talk about worry. Um, now, you've mentioned these three systems, that actually fear is important. It's part of survival, right? Mm. Um, but we live in an age where just levels of anxiety are, are quite frightening. Mm. That all of us are learning, particularly in a city like London, um, how to manage anxiety. The question isn't really, are you anxious or do you get anxious? That's almost laughable as a question. The question these days is, like, how do you manage your anxiety? Um, what is going on in this passage in terms of Jesus teaching about anxiety? Because that's a chunk of your book is really about that. I mean, the first thing that Jesus isn't doing, he's, he's, not, he's not telling us that anxiety is biologically wrong. Mm. He's not telling us that fear is biologically wrong. He's not even telling us that worry is biologically wrong. What he's saying is, don't, don't worry about tomorrow, for today has enough cares of its own. So his instruction is, is not to go down the path of catastrophizing your life. Now, I, I, the catastrophizing is a really important word. You will all understand what I mean. If you like, the, the brain is a bit like the tube station. You go down into the tube station, there are multiple different routes that you could take. But, but Arnos Grove is not where you want to go. Okay? <laughs> so, so, but, but when, you're, when you're in King's Cross Station, you're trying to get to South Kensington, you don't go to Arnos Grove. You're going the wrong way and you're going to the end of the line. But in our minds, we tend to want to jump from A to B, but actually we end up at D. And it doesn't matter where we go, we end up normally dead in our mind. You know, it, we are always trying to protect ourselves about, about the worst possible outcome. And our brain believes that if it can show us the worst possible outcome, we'll be future-proofed against that outcome. Now, that isn't true. Mm. So we tend to catastrophize our future in order to defend ourselves against our present. What actually happens is that we live a life of anxiety and we don't deal with those things which are most important to us right now. Jesus' instruction is what's is classic CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yep. He's saying... Don't catastrophize yourself through tomorrow's worries. Yeah. They are not important to you. You don't need to worry about these big picture items about what you're going to wear or you know, what mm. you're going to eat. Tomorrow will sort itself out. In this first century Palestinian culture you're part of, you need to make sure you've got enough food for today. Mm. You need to make, you know, you're, you're a man who's living in an occupied territory. You're a man who has not got great wealth or great esteem. You need to care about the things you need to care about today. 
Mm. You need to deal with the stuff that you've got to face today. And if you stay present, focused with your worries, you can apply what problem-solving techniques. See, there's two sorts of worry. There's solvable worry. That is worry that responds well to problem-solving techniques. Like if you knew you were going to lose your job, you'd improve your CV and go for job interviews. But most people's worries are not solvable worries. They're floating worries. They're, you know, what if people don't like me? Well, what are you supposed to do with that? <laughs> you know, how, what do you do? Do a straw poll in church and say, you know, put up your hand if you like pee. <laughs> put Everyone's going to... Put it quick. <clears throat> it's not looking good for you, buddy. Um, right. You know, the worries that we have are future-focused. They're the dis- that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, you know... Don't, don't deal with the practical issues that you face. Or don't deal with the real concerns that you have you know, to deal with. But don't, don't go down to the tube and end up at the end of the line. Stay with the journey of challenge that you face today. Yeah. That way you'll be able to see significant change. I mean, I, I was diagnosed after the London Wars with GAD, which is generalised anxiety disorder. It's a mental health condition. And you never really lose the diagnosis. So if I go to the doctors and I have a little sneaky look over his shoulder, I know that there'll be a lay- line that says GAD at the top. That's because if I keep going to the doctors with various mysterious complaints, <laughs> he'll know that they're psychosomatic rather yeah. than real. Now, I don't go to the doctors very often for that reason, because I don't like to be reminded. But, um, but, but, but it's important to recognise my, my health is not based on the loss of the diagnosis. My health is based on the decisions that I make every day to stay present. Yeah. To actually deal with what's before me, rather than going to the end of the line. I could go to the doctors every week and say I had a funny twinge and I think I might be dying. But actually, I could just deal with the reality of my day-to-day and I know I'd be well. Yeah. We can't eradicate all risk from life. You can't say it's never going to happen. That's part of what a worry problem becomes, the determination to try and eradicate all possible risk. But the great thing about being a Christian is that on one level, in the meta-narrative, all possible risk is eradicated. Yeah. Because ultimately, the life I live is not just the life I live now in the body, it's the life that I live in the kingdom. So my life is hid, to go back into the Sermon on the Mount's offering on perfectionism, in Christ, within God. So even if the worst anticipation of my mind was to become my reality, I would still be hid in Christ, within God, and my life would still be secure in him. I mean, the gospel is the best possible emotional message to someone with an anxiety disorder. Mm. Like, it's, it's practical, spiritual, biological, metaphysical wisdom of which there is no other alternative in the world. That's why, uh, you know, I'm so passionate about what I do because I believe that Christianity and Cognitive behavioural therapy and psychology and psychiatry are such a powerful combination. Yeah. They've self-referenced, but the ultimate, the dream ticket is to know that I belong. Yeah. I'm created for belonging. I belong to God. I belong right here, right now. I belong in this present moment. I don't need to work for it. I don't need to, to achieve anything to be here. I don't need to do better or worse. I just belong right now, and I'm owning the space because I belong in it, and I belong with you. And that relationally, together, as people, as children of God, the fabric of the church, you know, there is great power. Yeah. Uh, this is the power of the kingdom. So, so let's get really practical then. Um, being present now. So not getting lost in all the different permutations of what tomorrow might look like, next month might look like. How do you practically live now? Be present as a husband, be present as a dad, be present as a pastor, be present as a friend, and be present as a child of God, even spiritually, being present to God who's here right now. Um, Give us some practical thoughts. 
name, name your demons. Like, uh, you know, when Jesus calls out Lazarus, this is a spiritual kind of dissection. But the, the idea is that if there are things that cause you to run and hide, name those things. Don't, let, don't leave them in the closet. You know, I used to have this anxiety disorder which overwhelmed me. And I needed to spend time working out what the themes were. Was it, you know, for me, it was abandonment and it was illness. Yeah. And, and I had to name the themes and I had to see them in my thinking. And I did something called a thought record chart, which is a very practical thing. You can download it from our site. Where you basically spend a month just ticking a box on the thoughts that you're having every day to see how frequent those thoughts are. I was terrified. By the way, it doesn't get stronger just because you're writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> There's always people who think if I write it down, it will come true. <laughs> it totally won't come true if you're writing it down. But, you know, ticking those boxes and going, oh, my goodness, have you ever done an audit on your thoughts? Like, you might have gone to the gym and, like, had an audit on your body, but have an audit on your thoughts. I was amazed at how much time I was spending thinking about certain things. And as soon as I became aware of those things, that awareness is power. It's naming your demons. It's saying, actually, I see this thing, and I'm not going to become blind to that thing again. I'm just going to see it, and I'm going to know what it is. When you've seen those things, you group them into themes. And when you've grouped them into themes, you can really begin to work for them. So then I started saying, well, take abandonment. Mm. Okay, so I had some experiences in childhood which were quite painful. And I found myself replaying that script. I'm going to get abandoned. So rather than saying, oh my goodness, I'm going to do everything I can to not get abandoned. I flipped it around. I started saying, I'm going to do everything I can to possibly get abandoned in my head. So I was like, yeah, maybe I'll be abandoned. Yeah, totally, everyone's going to leave me. Everyone's going to walk out of church right now. I made it bigger and bigger and bigger. And your brain just goes, da 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 I can't compute. This doesn't work for me. I'm giving up. It's the whole thing is, you know, the longer sometimes we're trying to save our life, we'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that person will find it. Lest a seed fall to the ground and die, it bears not fruit. This whole principle of recovery from worry is about dying in order that you can live. I'm not going to be enslaved by worry because I just take it to Arnos Grove. I don't go there, but in my head I just go, what's the worst going to happen? Bring it on. And I sit with the physical reality of that, which for me might be actual physical symptoms of like, you know, feeling adrenaline or feeling like woozy or feeling shaky. And, And I sit with it, I scale it up. I don't scale it down because I want to die in order that I can live. Uh, I can practice what I call present contemplation, which you might know as mindfulness, but we do it in a Christian way. I'm just going, God, I'm I'm not even going to work with this worry right now. I'm going to see it, but I'm not even going to entertain it. Mm. It's like I'm going to write it on the board, but I'm not going to work it out. It's like a big piece of algebra. You could write it on the blackboard, and you're so tempted to start trying to sort that sum. But imagine if you just left it unsorted. Like, what would happen? You just leave it unsorted. Everything in your body's going, I've got to sort this sum, I've got to sort this sum, I've got to sort this sum. But if you don't sort it, your brain just goes, oh, that's kind of annoying. You're not going to do this, are you? You're not going to play this game. I'm going, no, I've got more important things to do with my life. Wow. So I'm just going to leave it there. So let's land with one practical thing, because I've heard you've, you've spoken about how the church often misinterprets that text about taking every thought captive. Oh, it's the worst. So just let's, let's land with that. Like, what's going on in that passage, um, and how has the church basically totally abused that? Okay, the, it, part of my diagnosis is a little bit of, of, of the obsessive aspect, which most people will understand. You, you have a thought, 
and the thought you become kind of obsessed with, and then you start doing things in response to the thought. So we, we have this ABC approach. So, so there's an action or there's a stimulus, uh, there's a belief, which is a kind of thought system, and there's a consequence to that. If the action, if you like, is a thought that comes into your mind, like maybe I've got cancer, for, for example. Yeah. Now, if you take that thought captive, that's like, no, I definitely don't. Oh, I'm going to take hold of that thought. I'm captivating that thought now. I'm going to pray that thought down in the name of Jesus. You are overestimating the significance of that thought. And you're actually planting a flag in your head saying it's probably going to come true. As a result, you are not, you're not taking the thought captive. You're becoming a captive to that thought. So actually, if you take thoughts captive in the way that the church often interprets it, rather than the power being with you, the power is with your thoughts. Because you're actually taking something which is part of the subconscious stream of your own mind and has very little importance to you at all, and you're taking it out of the subconscious stream in your mind, you're planting it into your consciousness and saying, this is of the utmost importance, think about this thing all the time. Yeah. So if I said to you guys, don't think about the pink elephant, I've made the pink elephant (laughs) prohibitive to you. So long as it's prohibitive, you're going to think about it much more. Anything to do with pink, you think elephant. Anything to do with elephant, you think pink. pink. Now I'm going to take the flag away by saying you're permitted to think about the pink elephant as much as you possibly like. Now initially you're thinking about it more, but after a minute or so you're thinking about it less because it's getting boring. Who wants to think about a pink elephant all day? Your brain doesn't need to think about it anymore, so it's no longer important. So you now have power over your thoughts. If you take every thought captive in the way that we anticipate, mm. what we're saying is you could spend all... You have between eighteen and 50,000 individual thoughts a day. Can you imagine what it would be like if you had 50,000 negative thoughts a day? You would never leave your house. Mm. You would never do anything for the kingdom of God. You would be completely just blowing up inside. The instruction to take every thought captive is, is not to entertain. Yeah. Because actually, what, when we talk about thoughts that are lustful, what should you do? Entertain or not entertain? Not entertain. Should you take it I captive? I was panicking then. I was, like, I was, I was getting ready to like... What should, what should we... what, do, you, you know, do, you, do you set up a little <laughs> television screen in your own mind and keep replaying the thoughts? Do you, yeah. do you put bars around it and like yeah. watch it through the bars? Yeah. Or do you just go, actually, I'm not entertaining a thought yeah. like that. I'm going to let that flow. I'm just going to let that flow away. I just let things go across my peripheral vision. Oh, look, that's an unsavoury thought. Yeah. Oh, that's gone. Because I've got more important things to think about. Oh, there's another unsavoury thought. Yeah. There so is. just talk us through the balloon thing. Because essentially, I found that really helpful of like the kind of taking thoughts yeah. captive as it's kind of often been interpreted is almost like if it's a black balloon. Yeah. You just grab the thought. Okay. You keep grabbing the thought. So, so, so imagine, uh, imagine I've got some red balloons... They are danger signals and they are negative thoughts. And I've got some yellow balloons and they're a kind of real encouragement, a real blessing to me. Now, if I'm standing on this pedestal here, imagine I'm, st- I'm going to stand up here. So imagine that, that the balloons are rising up out of the floor right now. So I've got red balloons mixed with yellow balloons. So of the between 18 and 50,000 thoughts you're having every day, there are many red balloons coming by. They're danger signals. And you think, oh my goodness, there's a, there's a slightly dodgy thought there. I've got to grab that one. So you grab the string of that one. And then you see another one over here and you grab that one as well. And then you see another one. Now you can't see the yellow balloons because they're passing you by. You're only focused on the red balloons. And before you know it, you've got two massive bunches of these red balloons. They're blocking your vision to any of life's blessings and they are covering your eyes with all of life's risks. Now, you've taken all the thoughts captive, but now you're cursed. You're basically standing in a curse. You're surrounded by all those things which are contra-gospel. 
And instead, instead, what you need to do is let your hands open mentally and spiritually and allow the threats, the thoughts, the negatives to float upwards, but instead to focus on those blessings that God is passing through your field of vision every day. And if you remain open-handed, those blessings keep rising, as do the risks. But so long as you believe that by uh, captive catching or captivating those mm. risky thoughts you're setting yourself free from them you're in a delusion which will lead to your downfall yeah. that your your call is to to let them go and it's all about power it's about the spirit of the word rather than the law of the word the spirit of the word is that you might not be held captive anymore by these thoughts yeah the spirit of the word of the, the, that's the spirit of the text it's not the law of the text Amazing. and so we encourage the spirit of the text which to let these things go as the great frozen anthem says. Yes, amen. Final question then. <clears throat> Just a few sentences, we'll make this brief. So Jesus lands this section, as I said earlier, seek first the kingdom. In other words, don't seek certainty or, or an attempt to find certainty in an uncertain world through wealth and whatever else. Um, and then he talks about you can't serve two masters and you, know, you cannot serve both God and money. Then he talks about anxiety and then he lands and says, seek first the kingdom. What's going on there? He's really reordering our perspective. Like the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is being in relationship with God. That's why Christ came. He came in order that we might have relationship with him. And through relationship with him, we have, might have relationship with one another. The whole gospel can be summed up by the journey of the shame snake. You know, Adam and Eve in the, in the garden, the snake put enmity between them and God. He said, you know, surely God did not say. Yeah. And you want likeness with God. And man is separated from God. Mankind is separated from, from God. We seek all sorts of material gains to fill the void of our separation. Our emotions are disordered because of this separation. We're dislocated from one another through this separation. Everything is a story of separation until Christ becomes the snake in order that we might share in his glory. He becomes the separation. Mm. The curtain in the temple is torn in two, so the division between man and mankind and God is broken in order that it might be reunified. The call to seek first the kingdom of God is about seeking the reunification of relationship with God. Nice. That's why it's all about relationship. You know, whatever we do in our life is purposeless without relationship, either with God or with one another. You, you cannot have a good time on your own. Hmm. You can believe that you're having a good time on your own, but you are not really having a good time on your own. Have you ever been on holiday to somewhere truly amazing hmm. on your own? <laughs> it is a desolate experience. <laughs> you see the most incredible sunset of your life on hmm. the beach that you, you know, couldn't imagine angels might have walked on hmm. and, and you're on your own. It's, hmm. it's, that's a picture of what life is like without relationship. Hmm. Adam had everything but nothing. Mm. when he lost relationship with God. We have everything but nothing when yeah. we lose relationship with God. Amazing. The world is broken because it has everything, but it has nothing so long as it has not relationship with God. The whole cosmos is defined by our relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. This really, I walk around London and I feel desolate. I start crying mm. because I just see people with so much yet so little. Yeah, and so true. I, I just think... For me, whatever my mental health condition, whatever the condition of the mental health of people around me, so long as they've got Christ in their life, they've got such riches, yes. such richness, so much calling, so much to offer. And we all have, yeah. so long as we're in relationship with God and one another.